I want to begin this morning um, by listening, us listening to Pastor Eduardo de Villa's story. He writes this, I have here an extremely important document. We all have important documents, um, a marriage certificate, the title of your car, <laughs> your, your birth certificate. This one is my naturalization certificate. My family and I came to the United States as political asylees, leaving the remnants of a country ravaged by war and destructive socialism that did not deliver on its promises. When we came, we had Nicaraguan passports. We were able to come to the U.S., but we were not given full citizenship. We were not protected by the United States. We were not allowed to vote. But it all changed in 2008. When we walked into an office in Miami and took a few tests and swore on oath of allegiance to the United States, we were granted full permanent citizenship status. We were fully in. He continues, during that whole process, one aspect that struck, uh, stuck with me was realizing the seriousness of a statement that then President Bush wrote. We are united not by race or culture, but the ideals of democracy, justice, and liberty. And he concludes his statement by just saying, beautiful. Beautiful. I wanted to share Pastor Eduardo's story because one of the major truths that the Apostle Paul has reminded us of in the first three chapters of Ephesians is the reality that those who are in Christ now, um, those who are in Christ are now citizens of a different country. If you're in Christ, you're a citizen of a different country. And you're not, we're, we're not united by race, nor are we united by culture, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Did you catch that? Incredible, isn't it? When you come to Christ, you're no longer a stranger or foreigner. You're now part of God's family. You have the full blessing and protection of the heavenly father, sovereign heavenly father, the king of kings. You're no longer undocumented. You no longer have to be anxious about where you belong or how you're going to survive. No, through Jesus Christ, God has created a new family. And listen, you are fully in. Incredible. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to the person next to you and, and, and just tell them, hey, 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 glad you're in the family, okay? Just take a moment. Just tell them, glad you're in the family. <laughs> Isn't that great news? We are family. <laughs> so now, of course, comes the question, um, 
Well, what are the expectations of being part of this family? You know, growing up as a member of the Sutton family, um, whenever I would get into trouble, which was more often than I wish to, you know, uh, really think about these days, um, my, my father would always remind me, Joel, as Suttons, we don't behave that way. <laughs> I mean, I was part of the Sutton family. Therefore, the expectation was that I was to behave in a manner that reflected my family. Paul, starting in Ephesians chapter 4, is going to remind us of the same type of thing. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Let's start by looking at verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. First of all, to walk suggests something controlled, um, directed. It's not something that you just do once and then you're finished with it. Now, walking here, it it means that you're to live with intentionality. (laughs) It's ongoing. And, And notice here that double emphasis on the calling. Look at this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What's he mean by that? I mean, what's our calling? Paul is reminding us that we are, remind us, those of us who are in Christ, that we are adopted. That's our calling. We're in God's family. That's our calling. We've been chosen and we've been forgiven and, and, and God's grace has been just lavished on us. We're God's workmanship and, and, and we're citizens of another kingdom. We've been reconciled to God and we've been reconciled to each other. We belong to his family. That is our calling as believers. And we're to live in harmony. We're living in, in, in harmony. We're to live in unity. We're to live in a manner that reflects our new family. Now, it's, right, it's important for us to see right up front, I want you to notice this, that our calling, think about this, calling comes prior to the expectations. In other words, God's love comes first. Okay? Um, in Christ, we are in the family, and after being included in the family... <laughs> Then comes the challenge to live accordingly. Understand here, Paul is not giving instructions to those outside the family. I mean, my father never went to a neighborhood boy and said to him, hey, as Suttons, we don't behave that way. (laughs) No, that wasn't appropriate. He he gave that instruction only to me and to my siblings because we were in the family. Likewise, Paul's instruction here is directed to us who are already in God's family. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are in the family. And if you're in the family, then you should value God's love enough to be shaped by it. So what are the expectations for us as part of God's family? 
Well, one of the first expectations is that we walk in the unity that God has given to us. In fact, look with me, verse 3. Starting in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you notice there are the seven times that Paul uses that word one? <laughs> Paul is telling us that our, our unity is to be motivated by our common ground. One God, one faith, one baptism, one hope. <laughs> there is only one gospel. And to believe in that one gospel is, in, is to enter into the unity that that one gospel creates. Everything that you and I hold as significant, that which we confess as important, we hold with each other. Our Christian faith is a shared faith. And do you notice the seven ones here that Paul lists? They revolve around the three persons of the Trinity. Do you catch that? One spirit there in verse 4. And then there's the one Lord in verse 5. And then the one God and Father of all in verse 6. Paul is telling us, catch this, that our unity is motivated by theological oneness, by the, the oneness of the, of the Godhead. Um, there is one body because there is one spirit who indwells and empowers us. We have one hope, one faith, one baptism because there's only one Lord. And there is one family in Christ because there's one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. <laughs> Let me ask you, is there only one God? Yes, then he has only one church. Is the unity of, of, of God um, impossible to divide? Yes, <laughs> then so is the unity of the church. It's no more possible, catch this, think about this. It's no more possible to split the church than it's possible to split the Godhead. We're to walk in a unity that God has given to us. But how? I mean, <laughs> I mean, face it, how do we walk in unity? I mean, Paul's vision here, doesn't it seem so idealistic? I mean, it sounds wonderful, but you and I, I mean, we live in the real world, right? Um, where divisions these days is normal. Um, it's expected, even in the church. I mean, all we have to do is look around us here in, in Minneapolis. We can see the church's disunity. We can also see a, a local church and, and how it breaks apart and is, struggles with unity. Too often times, I think the church resembles an asylum for the criminally insane. A man was a bit surprised when he visited an asylum of the criminally insane he was surprised because there's only three guards that were taking care of over 100 inmates. He said to one of the guards, aren't you afraid that the inmates will unite and then overcome you and escape? 
And the guard said, no, because lunatics never unite. <laughs> Sometimes I, I feel like that's the church, right? So how are we to unite? How are we to maintain unity? Well, two things that Paul gives us here at the very first part of chapter 4 that we need to do. First, we have to put in the effort. Look with me at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. <laughs> Paul here lists four ingredients required for, for unity. And each of them, think about that, each of them take effort. They don't just happen. They take specific effort. Each of them, in fact, require us getting rid of something else. For unity exists, humility is essential. And humility requires us to renounce self-centeredness, doesn't it? I mean, pride lurks behind discord. I mean, we seek recognition and, and, and respect and, and honor. We take assertiveness training, you know? And we're encouraged to look out, what? For number one. And our self-seeking evolves, evolves into jealousy and into attacking others. Years ago, Atlantic Monthly told about the superstars Tenors um, Jose Carreras and Placido Domingo and Luciano Pervati um, performing together in Los Angeles. A reporter <laughs> tried to press uh, the issue of competitive, competitiveness uh, between the three men. You have to put all of your concentration into opening your heart to the music, Domingo said. You can't be rivals when you're together making music. That's also the way it should be in the church. At every turn, the Christian faith is an assault on our self-seeking, isn't it? We're important, but we're not the center. God is. We must put all of our, our focus and concentration on Christ and the gospel. Christ-centered and Christ-sent together. That's our mission. A second ingredient is gentleness. Gentleness, listen, is, is not a synonym for weakness, okay? Instead, it's the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless the master of herself and the servant of others. Gentleness conveys uh, sensitivity and a valuing of the other person. In order to have gentleness... We must renounce harshness and violence. Unity and healthy relationships, they cannot exist under force and threat. Now listen, while gentleness is certainly needed in the church, okay, I think one of the places it, it's probably most needed is, is in families, don't you? Parents. Children are crushed by harsh and demeaning language. Husbands and, 
and wise. I got to tell you, we must be careful. Cruel comments and humiliating remarks will only produce irreparable damage in your marriage relationship. See, we need to see family members both in the homes and also in the church. I think as if they were marked fragile, handle with care, gentleness. Third, Paul lists patience. Patience is the enduring annoyances and difficulties over a, a, a period of time. Nobody, listen, nobody enjoys learning patience, right? I don't. In order to have patience, we must get rid of the, our own demanding agendas. Um, I mean, our, our society has taught us to want it now and then also to expect it now. <laughs> the idea that we should not have to wait on anything or, or anyone, I got to tell you, that's just another form of self-centeredness. Finally, Paul's fourth ingredient here is, is uh, unity, uh, to unity is loving forbearance. A modern way of saying this is that the Christian life um, is a life of putting up with other people <laughs> out, of a, out of an agape love. In order to bear with one another, we must renounce our own rights. We hate to do that these days. We must be willing to forgo what might be our rights and put up with each other in love. Different than all the other virtues that Paul lists here, instead of dealing with self, what this one does, this ingredient deals with relations with others. It's one of the one another's of uh, scriptures to live in unity. You and I are called to live other-centered lives in a me-centered world. And you think about that list. I mean, it's a great list. But when you look at it, don't you have to admit that none of those four virtues are easy? None of them just happen. <laughs> Unity is not easy. Just like in, in family life, there's always this, this huge gap between the ideal and the real, right? <laughs> For example, I thought, okay, I... How can I illustrate this? Well, you know, every autumn, you fall season, uh, when my kids were younger, uh, uh, our family would like to go apple picking, probably just like your families. We like to go out to the apple orchards around here in the Twin Cities and out in the, uh, out in the uh, farms and, and go to apple orchard and go to the apple uh, orchards for apple picking. Well, here's the ideal day uh, of apple picking, right? The leaves are gold and rusty. Sky's beautiful just like today. It's 70 degrees. We all pile into our, our, our minivan and we start singing and, and laughing as we merrily drive to the orchard. We arrive early in the morning with plenty of time to enjoy the whole day at the orchard. Surprisingly, the folks at the apple orchard, they say, well, today apples are free for families. So our kids guzzle apple cider and they, you know, stuff themselves with what those, those little apple donuts and they don't even get a sugar high. It's an ideal day. Finally, after that perfect day at the orchard, we drive home and our children keep saying, wow, thanks, mom and dad. 
ideal day. But then there's the real day. That looks a little different. It's a disaster from the start. We leave two hours late. The apple orchard closed at 5 p.m. We're leaving at 3.30, and it takes an hour to get there. <laughs> but I bark to everyone, listen, we're going to go, so get in the car. We miss lunch because we're scrambling to get everything done. With blood sugar levels plummeting, Becky and I, we start arguing back and forth. Um, I think it's her fault that we're getting there late, and she thinks it's my fault getting there late. We keep arguing until the kids interrupt us because they're arguing with each other. And I turn around, and I tell them, stop it. I'm arguing with your mom. <laughs> we pull into the apple orchard. We're only have 30 minutes before closing time, so we tell the kids, hurry up so you can have some fun. <laughs> and by this time, you know, all the good apples are gone. Nothing is, is free. When we get the kids finally back in the van, it's already dark. On the way home, we finally get our apples. We stop off at McDonald's and get an apple turnover. Yeah. <laughs> now, unfortunately, you know, even though Paul seems to paint this ideal piece, family life, church life, they aren't always ideal, are they? I think that's why Paul adds verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That Greek word for eager there is emphatic. It means that we're to spare no effort. It means that we're to be zealous for unity. It means that we're to value it and, and be attentive to it and, and invest energy towards it so that it's not threatened. To be humble, gentle, patient, and lovingly tolerant in the midst of a real community among real fellow sinners, friends, that requires effort. It will take every ounce of effort and strength and focus we have to keep the gift of unity that Jesus gave his life to win for us. Now, before anyone gets the idea that this unity that Paul is talking about means that there are no differences, that every Christian is the exact replica of every other Christian, Paul deliberately qualifies what he's talking about here. He reminds us that this unity is not uh, equal to sameness. Instead, unity is achieved through diversity. And that's the second thing we must do. We must not only put in the effort, but we must find the unique part that we play in the church and in the world. I want you to notice the contrast between 6 and 7. Notice in verse 6, uh, it speaks of God as the father of us all who is above all and through all and in all. And then look at verse 7, but, <laughs> but, but grace was given to each one of us. Paul here, notice this, he turns from all of us to each one of us. He moves from the unity of the church to the diversity of the church. Our Christian unity is enriched by our diversity. And also the responsibility that each person has. When Paul uses that word grace there in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, that word grace there, he's not 
using it in the terms of a, of a, a saving grace. He, he's using it in the terms of a, a grace for ministry. He could have just as easily said, um, to each of us, ministry has been given. In the charter of the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., they have this saying, on the ship of the church, there are no passengers. All are members of the crew. <laughs> I like that. Sometimes people ask me, how many ministers do you have there at, at, at First Free? And I tell them, oh, I don't know, around 400. <laughs> because all of us who are in Christ, in the family, we're all ministers. We've all been given the grace to do ministry. And the biblical vision of the church is that we function as an every member ministry here. So you say, well, why is this unity so important? I mean, why is, is Paul urging us to live in harmony and in, in unity? Well, it's for the purpose of making us mature, Christ-filled family members. So no longer will, will you be batted about by anything or by, by everything. It's so that when the world looks at a united church, they'll see a portrait of Jesus they'll see the whole measure the fullness of Christ in us look with me verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ so it will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with it, which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, I want you to notice here, as I read that, I want you to notice that Paul here assumes that every believer who's in Christ, who's in the family of God, every believer desires to grow. There's an assumption there. That if you're in the family of God, you desire to grow. You want to really grow in Christ. Some people ask me, how do I know if I've grown? Um, have I grown just because I'm, I, I'm able to quote scripture or, or have I grown more because, because I've, just, I, I've joined the church? I want you to look again at what Paul says, verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow. When Paul says here, from whom the whole body, he's alluding to us. He's alluding to the church as the body of Christ. A body is held together, right? Not just by sinew and skin, but by vein and, and, and blood and the skeleton. And for a body to grow and be healthy, everything needs to be connected. Working together. And listen, one sign that you're not growing that you're unstable, that you're being tossed to and fro, is that you just sit alone. That you're isolated. You think 
Uh, you're a lone ranger Christian, a solo performer, trying to do faith by yourself. You don't want to be connected. You don't want to be involved. I can speak to some maybe who are watching online. This might be a little sensitive. But listen, if you are able to come to church and you say, no, I want to stay at home because I don't want to, uh, to, to, to be involved with anyone, if you refuse and just watch online, I got to tell you, that's an indication that you're not growing. You don't want to cooperate with anyone else. That's a true sign that you're not as mature as you thought. On December 4th, 2017, 400 musicians gathered in the 23rd Street Armory of Philadelphia to perform the Symphony for a Broken Orchestra by David Lang. The orchestra included amateurs and professionals, even members of the storied Philadelphia Orchestra. The youngest performer was nine-year-old uh, uh, cellist, the oldest, an 82-year-old oboist. Uh, it might have been the most diverse orchestra in America, they say. The 400 uh, brought with them broken instruments, a trumpet held together with blue painter's tape, a violin with no A-string, a bow that had lost most of its hair, a cello carried in multiple pieces. <laughs> you see, the government had cut funding for the music programs in public schools, and many school instruments had fallen into dis disrepair. But Lang made something beautiful out of them. As the musical piece opened, many of the instruments were silent, but gradually, they found their voice. While a trumpet might not be capable of a sound, the keys could tap a rhythm. A scraping of a bow over a silhouette of a violin body could add an unusual element. At one point, a cellist made noise by just turning the stringless peg. <laughs> As a 40-minute symphony progressed, the instruments, they roared to life. Some musicians struggled like a clarinetist who could, not, who could get only a short spurts of sound and the, the French horn player who kept losing his mouthpiece. <laughs> but together the orchestra produced a rich harmony. The music was playful and it was joyful. As the performance wound down, each section bowed out one by one until all that remained was a humble squeal of a broken clarinet. Friends, in the church, each broken instrument adds its own voice. But with each other, the orchestra produces a joyful song of praise under the hand of our director. That's a picture of us. Humbly, gently, patiently, lovingly coming alongside each other in unity so that we can all grow into Christ's likeness. It requires unity. It requires each one of us to play our part. It requires each of us to make effort, every effort to keep the gift of the unity that Jesus gave his life to win for us. 
So here's my simple invitation to you this morning. Not really simple, <laughs> but here's my invitation. It's simply this. Live out your faith in unity. Live it out in unity. We're family. This is the place that you belong. This is the place where you can become the person that God has designed you to be. So make every effort to walk in the unity of the spirit. Practice humility and gentleness and patience and love for one another here. So that we all together can attain uh, maturity through the unity which will come from knowing and trusting and growing up in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us on the cross to bind us together to bring us as your body together, unified, so that we can grow up in you. Lord, enable us, strengthen us, give us wisdom. Enable us to have that, just the humility and gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance for one another. Your son's precious name, amen.